By its fourth season, The Incredible Hulk had settled nicely into its groove. There were no behind-the-scenes dramas to report, and everything was ticking along nicely. In front of the camera, the series kept its three main leads unchanged. Bill Bixby was still hugely empathetic as Dr. David Banner, Lou Ferrigno flexed admirably as the monster from Banner's id, and Jack Colvin brought his best hangdog look to dogged reporter Jack McGee. Behind the camera, all was well. The series continued to be executive produced by Kenneth Johnson and a showrunner he would tend to write and direct the bigger episodes. The core writing staff of Karen Harris, Jill Sherman, Andrew Schneider, Nick Carrier and others remained in place and other crucial elements such as music, effects and storytelling style had all got to the place where the series could deliver a thoroughly entertaining hour of television without making it look too difficult. A sizeable hit, this show tended to mix its usual morality plays with occasional mythology episodes, stories about Banner's search for a cure on an 80 to 20 ratio. Johnson encouraged his writers to create stories about anything at all, as long as they adhered to the series formula of two Hulkouts per story and Banner leaving at the end. Beyond this, anything goes, with stories about alcoholism, masculinity and maturity providing a suitable backdrop to regular doses of the Hulk smashing things up. Johnson's notion was a good one, leading to a number of great stories, but it did mean that, when the deadline loomed, stories could get a tad formulaic, with the morality plays following an overly familiar pattern. Banner would normally wander into a town, or already be there when the episode opens. He would befriend, or be befriended, by somebody with some emotional problem and a physical problem, allowing both sides of his Jekyll and Hyde persona to get involved, before being forced to move on at the end to evade the tenacious Jack McGee. This meant that the more interesting episodes tended to be the ones about Banner and his problem, but these, by their very nature, were few and far between. One way the show gained respectability amongst actors, though, was in its guest cast. Bill Bixby was, by numerous accounts, a very generous actor. If a script came along that was a showcase for another character and it wasn't about Banner, Bixby was happy to settle into a supporting role, allowing the guest star their moments to shine. Bixby, like Peter Falk and arguably Tom Hanks, was a character actor whose affable style had led him into the role of leading man, but his ego wasn't so threatened that he wouldn't allow others to take the limelight. Whilst the show itself was in a groove, on a personal level, the fourth season was a dark time for Bixby. During the series' third season, the actor went through what Johnson, in Tomorrow's The Age of TV Heroes, referred to as an incredibly bitter, acrimonious divorce, which left the actor full of venom and anger. The sudden death of Bixby's six-year-old son during the production of the fourth season was devastating for both cast and crew. This event fueled Bixby's anger, something he channeled into his work, but as a viewer and fan of the man's work, as well as a father, I can only imagine the pain and anguish he was going through. Perhaps an episode that really delves into Banner's anger more than most, and a long-time favourite of mine, was Dark Side. Guest stars for this one are quite slight, but the supporting cast is headed up by William Looking, a quintessential, hey, that guy! Here, Looking is playing Mike Schulte. However, he's best known to me for being Colonel Lynch in the A-Team. 
Looking, however, boasts appearances in every major US TV show of the last 40 years, with a resume that includes Mission Impossible, Kojak, The Rockford Files, Dallas, The Greatest American Hero, Knight Rider, Magnum P.I., The X-Files, Deep Space Nine, ER, Enterprise, and Sons of Anarchy. In addition, he also appeared in the second Captain America telefilm in the 70s and the 1975 Doc Savage movie. He'd even been in the Hulk before, popping up in the Antwerp horror back in season two. Rosemary Forsyth plays Schulte's wife, Ellen. Canadian by birth, Forsyth also had a long and distinguished career. Like looking, she paid her dues with a long run in the soap Days of Our Lives and appearance in hit shows like Magnum, TJ Hooker, Columbo, Hunter, Voyager and Without a Trace. The other main role was that of Laurie, the Schulte's young daughter. Felice Sampler has the longest IMDb list of any of the actors involved, thanks to her long career as a voice artist on animated series like Digimon and The Legend of Korra, and video games like World of Warcraft. She even voiced Betty Ross on the 90s animated Hulk series. This, the fourth episode of season four, aired on the 5th of December 1980. Dark Side was written by Nicholas Carrier and directed by longtime Hulk director of photography John McPherson. To whet your appetite, here's the teaser and the traditional opening credit sequence. Keep your hands off of her. <laughs> she won't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> You've always tried so hard. This is the creature. You don't want him released. I can. And I will! Come with me, Laura. Laurie, what are you doing? She's leaving with me. Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. The episode opens in an unusual place for Banner. As a rule, he normally chooses to live apart from humanity, constantly afraid his monstrous alter ego will wreak havoc on people and property. But here, Banner is living as a boarder in a respectable family home. Of course, all is not as it seems, as David is apparently here because the family patriarch is a sailor and away a lot, so the lady of the house took David in as a way of making a bit more money. David is also up to something. He's acting all shady-like at his day job at Devlin Chemicals, and he's kitted out his room at the Schulte's house with science stuff, making it look very much like a mad scientist's lab. I'd be a tad worried about this if I were the Schulte's. They don't seem worried, of course, because David is a lovely man who doesn't seem overly embarrassed that Laurie, the 18-year-old daughter, has a mad crush on him. The Schultes, however, have a minor family crisis. 
Mike is away a lot and has just returned from 10 months at sea after only being at home for one month from a prior job. It's easy to read between the lines here and ascertain that Laurie is missing a father figure, but also starting to develop feelings for this kind boarder who is nice to her and, more importantly, there for her. Mike is a bit of a blowhard with a complex about this bloke who's just muscled in and got his feet under the table in his family home. This is understandable, I suppose. It's not like Mike's a bad guy. He's just, you know, rather old-fashioned in his ways. He's also none too impressed when he spots the furtive glances tossed David's way over the dinner table from his young daughter. In true David fashion, and in keeping with all Marvel Comics heroes, David is far too wrapped up in his own problems to even notice what's going on under his nose. See, David has found a potential way to control his problem. Here's a clip. Control of the creature, I believe, can now be concentrated in one area, the primitive, aggressive right side of the brain. By suppressing activity in this quadrant, I can hopefully build the left side's intellectual dominance and prevent further seizures. Utilizing the carotid arterial pathway, I hope to saturate the right side target area before any of the drug reaches the left side brain. If any of the residual elements should slip past, I think they would be of insufficient quantity and strength so as to not adversely affect the subject. The reason for all David's skulking around has become apparent. He's working on a drug that will allow him to control the creature. This is a different tack for David to take. Prior to this, he's wanted the creature gone, not controlled. It plays into David's desperation that he's willing to change his approach and take this potentially very risky course of action. Having learned nothing from the pilot episode, David tests his theories on himself and, in a shocking development to all, something goes wrong. He starts having wacky hallucinations about two Native Americans chasing each other through a stage-bound desert and then one throws a spear through the other. When David regains his composure... It's all gone a bit peak tongue. A mistake. You really messed up, didn't you, Banner? You've always tried so hard to suppress the creature. You don't want him released. Well, I do. And I can. And I will! <laughs> the sound design in the clip you just heard was excellent, with the ticking clock increasing in volume as David undergoes his savage meltdown, and the minimalist score contributing greatly to the atmosphere. The lighting is also very dark, David being illuminated by just a few small wall lights. David goes a tad cliched at this point, eating a chicken leg like a caveman, necking a bottle of bourbon and then flirting outrageously with Laurie. He even insists on calling her Laura, which he says is a woman's name, not a girl's name. I don't know if this was uppermost in the producers' minds, but Laura was David's wife's name, so there could be some deep psychological reason David insists on calling Laurie Laura. 
Fortunately, Mike finds David and Laurie in the kitchen before it can go too far, and he intervenes. But when he tells David to be out within the week, David threatens the man, telling him to never touch him again. Bixby is great here, and it's a large shock to see the normally quiet and reserved David Banner's gentle face contorted in anger and resentment. It's really quite something. It's scurrier than the Hulk ever was. The next day, David calls in sick to work to try and reverse the effects, only to have the receptionist ask him out. David Banner, lady killer. Although not completely oblivious to her amorous leanings, David nevertheless just asks her to make a note that he's going to be off sick for the day, and then locks himself in his room, where he works tirelessly to combat the effects. Tests of my blood show that the experimental serum has interacted negatively with my brain's natural catecholamines. The result is a new hybrid enzyme, hereafter referred to as Enzyme 7. Instead of suppressing aggressive tendencies, Enzyme 7 has a reverse effect. It releases primal, even violent impulses. There's a twofold danger to the effects of Enzyme 7. I'm more likely to undergo metamorphosis, and the creature will reflect a different and highly aggressive personality. I believe that another injection utilizing a strong prolixin amino compound will reverse the effects of the experiment. However, I must get prolixin in very soon. Enzyme 7 continues to be produced, and its effects will most likely return, perhaps for a longer period of time. Perhaps permanently. I have no idea if all the science stuff that David just spouted has any base in reality, but, you know, it sounds plausible. After Laurie throws herself at David again, he has another relapse, and heads out to the club the receptionist mentioned earlier. The Swing Time. From the name, I think we can assume exactly what kind of club this is. David hits on the receptionist, which pisses off her boyfriend. Now, if I were her boyfriend, I'd be more pissed off that earlier on she asked David out to dinner. But, you know, I'm not, so... Uncharacteristically, David is cruising for a fight, leading to the single funniest line in the history of the show. Hey man, this lady's with me. I doubt that her taste is that bad. Only the second time it was said in the body of an episode is both chilling and hysterical, delivered with relish by Bixby. This is a David who wants to be angry, who's looking forward to revelling in the Hulk's power. Let's also pause here to give praise to Ferrigno. This Hulk is a lot more bestial, more savage, more terrifying than he's played before. Ferrigno's Hulk was characterised by an almost childlike innocence and naivete, none of which is present here. The Hulk tears the club apart, almost killing the object of his ire. His appearance is different as well. His jeans are torn much further up the legs than normal, and this gives the creature a more dangerous look. Sadly, the sequence closes with a famous stock shot of the Hulk bursting through a brick wall and into an alleyway, which is actually from the very first season. I've grown to dislike stock of actors more and more as I get older. 
Reusing footage of hardware or special effects is fine, but reusing stock of the performances must gall them. Had this scene shot specifically for this episode, I suspect Ferrigno would have played it substantially differently. The first Hulk out is expertly done though, playing into the script well and not feeling like an afterthought like some of the Hulk outs did. Its appearance this far into the show, much deeper than usual, also makes it stand out more. We've seen David grow steadily more unhinged, and this has increased our desire to see the Hulk and what this backfired experiment has done to him. The viewer is not disappointed by this extended wait. Well, not much anyway. A bit of a budget infusion wouldn't have hurt, but the acting and story are carrying the audience along well. The scene where the Hulk steals a large leg of lamb from a butcher and then attacks him is simply terrifying, and far more effective than the stupid Ultimates version of the character. Fortunately for the butcher, the creature softens as the drug wears off, and the Hulk leaves him shaken, but still very much alive. David returns to the Schultes to hear the radio reports, something that rocks him to his very core. One of the consistent elements throughout the run of the series was David's fear that the creature would kill, and with this drug in his system, that suddenly becomes a very real possibility. This is why I cannot get behind a Hulk that kills, even inadvertently. Banner would simply not let that happen, but also the minute that it does happen, the creature loses our sympathy. David continues with his experiments. Last night's spontaneous takeover by my right side personality is clearly indicative of Enzyme 7's phenomenal growth rate. My attempt to procure prolixin and other chemo derivatives needed to win this fight and curb aggression must be made this afternoon, Saturday. I can only hope that my resistance to the the other is strong enough to keep it from gaining control again. Difficult to maintain objective viewpoint. Perspective distorted. Constant strain to hold on. What's really good about this episode is also its inversion of the traditional Hulk formula. The family stuff, which would normally be front and centre in a story like this, takes a backseat to David's story. And this is a rare episode that is about David rather than the people he comes into contact with. He fuels the action, dominates all the scenes, even the ones he's not in, with the characters consumed with his actions, especially Laurie. The poor girl caught in a maelstrom of emotions and teenage hormonal imbalances. David continues to have the hallucinations, but this time he is the one slain by the Native American, not the other member of the same tribe. So we are left to assume that this is the dominant side subsuming David's personality. David is so close to taking the drug that will counteract its effects here, but just as he's about to inject himself, he suffers another relapse. David's more savage side refuses to accept the drug and instead takes to stalking Laurie. He returns to the Schultes where Mike is once again refusing to accept responsibility and run away to sea. It's an interesting plotline. Mike thinks he's doing the right thing, being away and earning lots of money for the family, but he's ignoring the essential problem that his family want him and his time more than money. 
As we get older, we realise that time is the one thing money can't buy. Meanwhile, David is busy seducing Laura. Again, a small reference to his dead wife would have been a nice touch, but it's there for those of us that recognise it. It's also very unnerving to see the obviously much more mature Bill Bixby hitting upon an 18-year-old girl, something the real David Banner would never do. David convinces Laura to leave with him, but they are confronted by Mike on the stairs. And it's at this point that mild-mannered, unassuming David Banner kicks the six-foot-five-inch sailor right in the face and knocks him down the stairs. He grabs hold of Laura and forces her into a stolen car before touring off down the street. David drives recklessly, but this is because he's fighting for control, waging a war with himself as he tries to take the drug that can restore his sanity. This war within him causes him to crash the car into a lake, and as Laurie's parents struggle to get her out of the sinking car, David manages to plunge the syringe into his neck just before he hulks out. This is one of the tensest hulk outs in the history of the show, as Banner isn't just fighting the metamorphosis here, he's fighting himself essentially twice over. He's fighting the more dominant evil side of his personality and the Hulk's repressed rage, for he knows that if the Hulk comes out to play at this point, the ramifications for the Schulte family could be potentially catastrophic. Thankfully, the drug kicks in enough for the Hulk to pull the car free of the lake, rescuing Laurie. Mike confronts the Hulk with a gun, and although the Hulk is still angrier than normal, before he can smash him to a bloody pulp, the creature's face softens as he realises something's gone wrong. Rather than confront the Schultes, the creature flees, leaving the Schulte family to heal themselves. Whilst this closure with the Schulte family is nice, this ending where the family is reunited and whole robs us of closure for Banner. The last we see of the Hulk is him running away, and we don't see David again in this episode other than in stock footage during the end credits of him doing his traditional walk away. I would have liked to have seen David observe the family reunion from afar and see that this wasn't all in vain. I would also have liked to see him get his bag back, which when we last saw it was still in the car. As it is, this is yet another inversion of the traditional Hulk formula. David doesn't help this family in any traditional way. If anything, he'll be remembered as a crackpot drug addict by both the Schultes and the receptionist. He will have disappeared without a trace, with the Schultes possibly believing him dead after the crash. I would have loved to have seen Jack McGee following up on this Hulk sighting and subsequent disappearance of John Doe, but sadly the running time doesn't allow for an appearance by McGee this week. Perhaps the reason this episode stays with me, though, is in its scenes of an unhinged and desperate David Banner, brought low by drugs and his desperate situation. With no one to help, David is really clutching at straws here, and it nearly destroys him. I've seen criticisms of this episode saying that Bixby is over the top, but I don't think that he is. He's never been a performer to scenery chew, and he doesn't do that here, turning Banner more into an angry, nerdy conniver than a moustache-twirling bad guy, and that, I feel, sells the moments better. Banner was often so laid back and calm, so understanding and sensitive, that he was sometimes too good to be true. So seeing a different side to him is unnerving, but also pleasing. He isn't perfect all the time, and that makes us like him more. The Incredible Hulk changed a lot of things from the comics, but I felt, and still feel, that it got Banner right. More so than some comics writers. 
The fourth season of The Hulk has some standout episodes that hold up somewhat better than the earlier seasons, purely on an aesthetic level. Almost overnight, the sillier aspects of 70s fashions died out, and we suddenly lose the flapping bell-bottoms and wide-collared shirts. Yes, the nightclub scene in this episode doesn't quite stand the test of time, but it also doesn't look like Huggy Burr is just off-camera either. This may have also been one of the cheaper episodes of the show. Most of the action takes place on a back lot or on a few sparse sets, but none of that matters because the drama and the acting carry the day admirably. Bill Bixby sadly passed away of complications due to prostate cancer on November 21st, 1993, aged only 59. The more I read about Bixby, the more I feel for the guy. Art often imitates life, and if there's a line in this show that sums up that bizarre intermingling, it's from the episode Equinox, where a cornered and masked banner tells Jack McGee, Mr. McGee, mine is not a happy life. Still, Bixby went down fighting, refusing to go quietly. In his final interview on news magazine show Entertainment Tonight, his final words were, Be good to yourselves, because if you're good to yourself, you're going to be kind to everybody else. Dr. Banner would often tell the people he met, you'd be good to yourself, my friend, a sentiment Bixby himself seemed to share. My memories of Bixby remain positive ones. For me, he's forever David Banner, stalwart and true, honourable and loyal, but with a touch of melancholy about him. I like to think he's still out there somewhere, wandering the loneliest highways in America, his brown bag over his shoulder, accompanied by the saddest theme in TV history. His thumb outstretched for a lift he'll never get, endlessly searching for a cure he'll never find. Okay, let's confront, confront, I don't know what confront is, it's almost rude. Let's confront the email bag. Our first email tonight, today, tomorrow and always, is Saturday Morning Animation Station from Luke Giaconetti. Hello Luke. Andy, listen to your Palace episode covering some 80s cartoons over the weekend and was compelled to write in and share some thoughts. A little background. As I've mentioned, both in our correspondence and on my own show, my father was an early VHS adopter, and thus we had many kids' shows taped off over-the-air broadcast to re-watch. As such, both Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and Dungeons & Dragons were a show which my brother and I watched a lot on tape as kids, and I still have affection for and fond memories of them. As for Battle of the Planets, that was before my time. I know the show now, in retrospect, but don't have any memories of it erring in syndication when I was a kid in Lower New York. The Japanese import I mainly remember was Voltron, although I do remember Robotech being heard as well, even if I don't have any memories of watching it, until it was syndicated on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 90s. The character design of Dungeons & Dragons to me is the most memorable. All of the characters are unique and different, and quite memorable. They really look like a varied sort of group you would get where everyone rolls up to their own character for D&D. Plenty of enemies and monsters as well, Venger, of course, but I have always liked that Tiamat, legendary five-headed dragon of D&D lore, is a recurring menace to both sides. The magical artifacts that the heroes wield are also nice, and make sense given the setting, as both mundane and magical equipment are central aspects of the game. Hank's energy bow is one of my favourite fantasy weapons of all time. Eric's shield was in perfect juxtaposition to his character, the quote-unquote cowardly cavalier, wield a weapon which required him to be brave. 
Sheila's cloak of invisibility is wonderful, and who could dislike Bobby's earthquake club? I never played D&D during the 80s, not getting into the game until I was in college, but I will admit that I always tried, never succeeded, in convincing my dungeon master to let me have an energy bow. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, along with 1982's The Incredible Hulk, as the two were typically purred together into an hour-long block, at least in my television market, was, in a very real sense, my gateway to the Marvel Universe. True, the series did not really examine the secret identities of Peter, Angelica and Bobby beyond the shallowest of surfaces, but the breadth and width of the universe which the show presented made me aware of Marvel long before I was reading comics. Episodes featuring Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the X-Men, Sunfire, Magneto, Doctor Doom, Green Goblin, Doctor Strange, Namor, Dracula, Juggernaut, Kingpin, Chameleon, Loki, Sandman, Mordred, Red Skull, Scorpion, I could go on, really gave me an appreciation for the fact that Marvel Comics was this sprawling epic landscape, filled with more characters and concepts than I could fathom. And Stan Lee's narration made such an impact on me that to this day when I read any Marvel Silver Age, even early Bronze Age comics, the narration boxes are done by Stan Lee in my mind. Additionally, I do need to make note of the wonderfully bizarre voice given to Beetle from the origin of the Spider Friends, played by Christopher Latter, venerable and prolific voice actor, best known as Cobra Commander and Starscream. A buzzing, distorted, staccato electronic voice which has stuck with me for 30 plus years as the voice of the Beetle. Much better than that from the 1994-95 Iron Man series, where he was actually given a Liverpool accent. Tish, what's wrong with the Beatle being a Scouser? That's perfectly valid. Luke continues, the show also created a couple of lines which over the years have become constant refrains between my brother and I. Firstly, from the X-Men adventure, Spidey says to Storm, asking her to shoot a lightning bolt up a conducting cable. As they say in department stores, charge it, lady. Secondly, from the Transylvania connection, as Iceman tries to keep the Frankenstein monster and Dracula's werewolf bodyguard out of a room. Whatever you're doing, make it fast. These guys are making Swiss cheese out of this floor. These may not mean anything to anyone else, but they're a big deal to me. Anyway, I've waffled long enough, so I will sign off. Thank you for the quick stroll down memory lane in the form of some cartoons from childhood. Looking forward to whatever else is coming down the pike from the palace. Thank you, Lou. That was quite interesting. I don't remember off the top of my head i'd have to research it but i'm pretty sure the hulk cartoon heard on itv to spider-man and his amazing friends heard on the bbc so we got them on different channels i think unless i'm misremembering something though but yeah you never know thank you for emailing in animation celebration is next from chris franklin hello andy hello christopher I thoroughly enjoyed your animation episode, having fond memories of all those shows. Admittedly, Battle of the Planets heard here when I was a preschooler, so I don't recall much about actually watching it, other than liking the bird-themed suits and thinking the bad guy looked like Batman with lipstick. I know it was redubbed and re-heard here in the US in the 90s as G-Force, but I didn't catch much of it then either. Dungeons and Dragons was a fun show, and it did seem to skew older than most Saturday morning fur. Heck, all of Marvel productions did. Compared to the usual Hanna-Barbera or Filmation output, they had an edgier, slightly anime feel. Nowadays, I can't see a whole lot of difference between the studio's work as far as maturity, but it sure seemed like that way back then. I do think D&D could have benefited from an actual final episode. Just have a cartoon actually end would have been unique and epic, and the type of thing that would have really made this show unique, but alas, it wasn't meant to be. Of course, I watched Spider-Man and his amazing friends religiously, although I do recall our local NBC station preempted it a lot for sports since it heard later in the morning in its later seasons. So I think there are several episodes I still have never seen. Firestar was a welcome addition to the show, and her simple, non-detailed bodysuit certainly appealed to me as a boy, even though I didn't know why. 
Apparently, the animators were told to tone down her proportions as the show went along. Of course, they were saddled with Ms. Lion, but it was part of animation law that every show had to have an annoying animal or impish sidekick character back then. I blame Filmation. Did you get the 80 solo Spidey series there as well? I actually preferred that to Amazing Friends. It was stripped in with the 60s Spidey reruns in our area, and I know you didn't get any Super Friends, which just seems cruel and unusual punishment. Love the episode. More please, Chris. Well, more came your way. So I hope you enjoyed them. We did get the solo 80s Spider-Man cartoon, but it was... I don't remember it getting a proper urine. I could be misremembering this because it is like 30 odd years ago. But I remember it just showing up randomly with episodes of Amazing Friends. So all of a sudden you'd get an episode that was just Spider-Man on his own. And that's how I remember it being screened. I don't remember it getting a proper urine. I certainly don't remember seeing it consecutively. And I don't remember it getting any kind of rerun. It is available on DVD as Spider-Man 5000 for some reason. But those DVDs are now long out of print and are are quite expensive, which is a shame. Because somebody mentioned it to me on Facebook or Twitter, I forget which. And I immediately thought, oh, I wouldn't mind checking that out because I thought they'd be dirt cheap. DVDs. Uh, Imagine my surprise when I found out that that and the 90s animated series, which I do have, are now selling for silly money. Because as far as I can ascertain, the 90s series did not get a release in America either. So we were the, I don't know whether we were the only territory to get it, but I know we got it. And fortunately, I bought it before it went stupid. But if anyone sees those Spider-Man 5000 DVDs and knocking around for dirt cheap, let me know. Because I wouldn't mind seeing that solo show and seeing what I think of it. Anyway, that's it for this time. That's the email sack empty. Thank you very much to Luke and Chris for emailing in for this particular episode. Next time, it's the 100th episode of Palace of Glittering Delights. And I will be yakking all over the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage. Remember, you can pop by the Two True Freaks page, buy your shit through Amazon through our link, we get the kickback, you know the drill. Email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you want to drop me a line about anything here on the palace or anything at all, really. Uh, and remember, you be good to yourself, my friends. Goodbye. Goodbye.